Let us open up our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. As we come back to this epistle written to this first century Jewish community, but it wasn't just any Jewish community. It was a Jewish community that had placed their faith in the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been working through this letter and we come to what is the last chapter, which is concluding with a series of exhortations. So I'm going to begin just by reading verses 1 to 3 which is really the first set of exhortations. They're very general exhortations, and we'll begin. So I'll draw your attention here to Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the hearing and the preaching of his word. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ. We confess that you are the one, the true, and the living, powerful God and creator of all that exists. You sustain all that you have created. All that is created finds its dependency upon you. You are the Holy Sovereign One. We thank you, O Father in Heaven that you, out of all of your creation, have chosen us, dear Lord, unto salvation, and as we have been learning in this epistle to the early church, also you have saved us unto sanctification. You are our Heavenly Father, and you care for us. You, dear Lord, want us to grow and to mature. And we thank you, O Father, that you have gifted us with something outside of ourselves, And that is the saving faith which brought us newness of life in thy glorious gospel and good news regarding your only begotten Son and our Savior, Jesus, the Messiah. We thank you, Father. And now as we come to learn more from your word, we ask that you would open our hearts and that your blessed spirit would instruct and teach us. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It is very notable as we come into chapter 13 that there is sort of a shift of approach by the inspired writer. Chapters 1 through 12, we've noted before, he has been using parallelism, Naomi. He's been using parallelism to compare what we have as Christians in the New Covenant with what those in the Old Covenant without saving faith did not have. That is the old covenant. He was he's been comparing and parallel, parallel, uh, uh, comparing that and parallelism, so that we would be encouraged not to give up as Christians, but to press on. And so, while he's had in chapters one through twelve, Hannah, this consecrated view of doctrine, 
this concentrated focus on how to live out that doctrine and persevere even though times are hard. Now he gets to chapter 13 and he begins with what it seems like are just general exhortations, right? They, they range in their topic. Uh, we're going to be looking at the first one today, an exhortation in Christian love. But he goes on with a general exhortation that's dealing with sexual ethics. Then of a general exhortation regarding greed, anxiety, an exhortation regarding the relationship between church pastors and their members. And we could kind of have the propensity to think that these general exhortations are somewhat detached from all the lofty doctrines that he has expounded for us in chapters 1 through 12. But that's not the case. That's not the case. In fact, these general exhortations, which most of us are somewhat acquainted with, we, should, we know something about love if we're Christians. We know something about the ethics of, of, of sanctified sexuality and greed and anxiety and you know, interchurch relationships and all that stuff. But what he's doing, really if you think about it, is he's saying that these exhortations, by way of reminder at the end of my letter, a lot of times people, they hold the best part of a letter to the end of what they want you to get. He's saying that these exhortations are foundational truths for those who sincerely want to follow Christ and make it unto the end. And so he brings them up to us and he's saying everything that I've said before, now these general exhortations regarding how you live out your faith are just as intimately important and intimately connected with the lofty doctrines about the nature of Christ, the nature of his covenant, the nature of his priesthood, etc., etc. I do not think, brothers and sisters, that it would be an overstatement to say that what we are talking about today is perhaps the most intimately connected. And that is love among the brethren. Love among the brethren. My sermon title very naturally is Let Love Continue. You see from verses 1 through 3, this is the natural theme that arises out of this first exhortation. Uh, this first set, I should say, exhortations in verses 1 through 3. And I propose to you, as you see in your handout, that we approach these first three messages under this theme, let love continue, under three points. The first, uniqueness of this love that's described in verse 1. Secondly, how this love is exhibited in hospitality. And thirdly, how this love is exhibited and caring for our suffering brethren. So here we see immediately in verse number one, as we begin to understand something of how unique is this love being described. Following all of the lofty thoughts in chapter 12, he exhorts them here in verse number one, you see it in your Bibles, let brotherly love continue. Now, brothers and sisters, when we're talking about brotherly love, there's two senses in which we can talk about brotherly love. There is brotherly love in a natural sense, shared upon uh, by all mankind, at least it ought to be, we're going to consider that. But then there's the special spiritual love. And so let's pick up first the natural brotherly love that could be considered when we're talking about brotherly love continuing. 
as you see in your notes, the reality of our natural relationship to one another as mankind is pointed to by the apostle, uh, by, the, by Luke in, in Acts 17, 26, when he said that God made from one blood every nation of men. So there's a reality that all of us are made from one blood. We're all like, yeah, that's Christianity, creation 101. We know that. Pastor and scholar, theologian John Owen, he says this aspect of all of us being made from one blood, it is really, or it could be described, a universal fraternal of all of mankind. And based upon this universal truth that we're all made of one blood, we're all created in the image of God, there is a sincere and legitimate compassion and love that we are to express to our fellow human man, our human brother, right? As, as need was to arise in his or her life, as opportunity were to provide for us, we are to always let love, humanly brotherly love, continue amongst all civilizations. Think for a moment, isn't this indeed the second greatest commandment that the Lord Jesus Christ gives us in the summarization of God's law? You see it in your notes in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. 39. Our Lord Jesus tells us, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, your fellow human brother. Love him as yourself. You and I, brothers and sisters, are to exhibit godly love to all of our neighbors. Brotherly love to all of mankind. Our fellow brothers in the flesh. That love is not to be conditioned how likable they are. That love is not to be conditioned upon their religious beliefs or lack of religious beliefs. That love of loving our neighbor, our fellow human brother or sister as ourselves, is not conditioned on their political views. No. We are, like Christ, to love all mankind. He commands you to. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now we know that there are some would have us mistakenly to love whales, owls, trees, certain peculiar parts of creation over and above the care and the well-being of our fellow human brethren. But we gather from this sense of understanding human brotherly love that God would have us to do otherwise, right? No, our fellow human brother, the love would just show them to be interested in their welfare, their care is much higher than other parts of creation. Some would have us to practice what I would call in brackets, selective love toward some of our human brethren over others. For instance, love to a pregnant mother's choice is selectively to be respected and given over love to our neighbor who is in her womb. But brothers and sisters, the nature of how we depend as humans upon one another in the early stages of our human development does not make any of us less deserving of the love that God requires we show one another as human beings. The human, your neighbor, that's in the womb of the other neighbor because of the nature of us as humans and how we develop is deserving just as much of the love that we're showing to the mother. Such selective love that has confused much of our culture today and around the world about 
loving our human brother and placing one neighbor of the human race over another is what has led to all of the evil atrocities we see playing out on the world stage again and again. Our history is repleted with this misunderstanding of brotherly love amongst the humankind. We could mention the Guatemalan genocide. We could mention the Rwanda genocide, where in a 100-day period, 500,000 estimated up to 1 million people were murdered by their fellow brethren, human brethren. If you've never looked at that, it's a, it's a, it's a shocking, eye-opening event that took place to show the, the, the depths of depravity of mankind where the Hutu majority government, they murdered and slaughtered another tribe in Africa, the Tutsis. We could speak of the Bangladesh genocide. Now, here's the shocking thing about this. Everything that I'm mentioning here has happened in the 21st century. The Guatemalan genocide, that happened in 1960, a period from 60 to 1996. Um, Recently, ISIS, within a matter, within a week, systematically murdered in cold blood the Yuzadi tribe, 9,900 people, completely almost wiped them off the face of the earth. In less than one year, I mentioned the Bangladesh genocide where the Pakistani government systematically murdered up to 3 million people in a year. All of this and these other countless wars that we hear about arise between mankind and it shouts out the grievous reminder of our depravity. And they all are witnesses to the great need of the love that's given to us by Christ and it's the love that only Christ can possess and give that can conquer such evil that resides and is exhibited amongst the humankind when it does not love one another. Pride, greed, anger, dominion, control of others. Brothers and sisters, it's all the spirit of Satan. It's the spirit of this world system. And it needs the love that only Jesus can give. And until that happens, all of these atrocities will continue to take place. People will continue to treat one another this way because it's all that they can do. But here's the application. Such a description is not a description of you. It's not a description of me. It's not a description of the church of Jesus Christ who says, I know and I have experienced and I possess the love of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. That's not a description of you. And that's why Paul, as you see in your handout, in his letter to the Galatians church, he instructed them, as we, the professors of Jesus Christ, those who have his love, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good. Let us do good. You see the action. To who? He says in that verse, all men, your neighbor. And so from this, we learn that our general love of our fellow man is to be much more than just lip service. It is to be made alive with action and ministries of mercy to all of those who are hurting around us. And before we go on to the spiritual love that really is authors talking about today, let me just say this, friends. Where there is a lack of love toward our neighbor, considering just that flyover there, of our love that we ought to have toward fellow man. 
wherever there's a lack of love toward neighbor, make no mistake about it. At the root is a lack of love for Christ. For it is Christ who loved all and who Christ, it is Christ who commanded, love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, I only highlighted that indebtedness of love that we all owe to other humans, our brothers in the flesh, to now draw out the uniqueness of this other sense in which we can speak of brotherly love. And as you see in your handout, that's the spiritual sense, spiritual love. The inspired writer here in verse 1 is not referring to the duty of loving just naturally our human brothers. He's referring to a different type of brotherhood. And that is a spiritual brotherhood. You know there are many places in the Bible where we are described as the followers of Jesus Christ of belonging to a particular family or to a particular brotherhood. There's many passages in the scriptures, but let's just look at two together. The first one you have in your handout is Romans 8.29. It says, For whom he did foreknow, referring to God, he also did predestinate to be conformed, that is sanctified, into the image of his Son, that he, his Son Jesus, might be the firstborn, here it is, among many brethren. Now here, among other things in this verse, we gather that Jesus is our elder brother, amid what you could call a peculiar or a particular brotherhood. And that brotherhood is only shared, it's only knitted together, not by blood, not by tribe, not by ethnicity, uh, none of those things. That special brotherhood from this text we see can only be shared by those who have been elected unto salvation and that salvation has been given to them. And so you and I in here belong to a spiritual brotherhood that unites us, knits us together inseparably by faith and faith alone. We have another one in the Bible that that points out and highlights this special brotherhood that's really being spoke about in verse 1 of our text today. You have it in your notes, Hebrews 2.11. And it says, For both He, Jesus, that sanctified that sanctifieth, that does the work of sanctifying, and they, that means us, the church, who are sanctified, are all of one. Well, of course, this is talking spiritually we're one. We're not all one person in here, right? We know this is spiritually speaking. But notice how it's referring to us as the church, who are sanctified by our older brother Jesus, our Savior Jesus. We are sanctified and we are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. There's that instance, that, that, that sense of unique brotherhood. Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church, will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. A sense of a unique family, children, brotherhood, oneness. Again, here is restated the emphasis on the reality that those who have been granted saving faith, those who have repented and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been made a special and an important, dare I say, a member of a spiritual family. And so here's the application. If by natural law we are to love and to care, and show compassion, and be concerned for our fellow broken human brother in the flesh, how much more should we be concerned, love, care for, 
Attend to our spiritual brothers who Christ has united us with. Now I just used Galatians 6.10 a moment ago to draw our attention to our universal obligation as Christians to love our neighbors as ourselves and to do good unto all men. But brothers and sisters, let us dare not forget how that verse ends. He exhorts the church what? Especially do good to those. Here again is that unique family phrase, the household of faith. The brothers and the sisters in this spiritual family that we call the church. We are to express this unique love that we possess amongst one another that Jesus has given us that the world does not know. This obligation, as you see in your notes, is Christians to love one another in Christ is of course a truth that we see repeated again and again and again in the New Testament. We don't have time to go through all the Bible verses, but in your notes I gave them to you. During your family worship time, during your own devotional studies, dive deeper into this reality of this unique family that you belong to and this unique love that we share between one another and as we're going to see in a moment is to be exhibited. And it is the truth that when we examine all of these passages in the New Testament, that we learn something of God's design behind giving us this supernatural love in this spiritual supernatural family. I'm going to provide four things for you that being part of this family, possessing such love, sharing such love, will help make it unto the end, i.e. making this intimately connected to the entire theme and thrust of this entire epistle, that weary Christians who are persecuted, facing trials, they keep running the race. Four things. The first, this unique love that we share brings glory to God as a testimony to the world regarding the greatness of our God. Matthew 5.16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. When we possess this unique love, it manifests itself, Galatians 6.10, and also in the two ways specifically talked about today in verses 2 and 3 with hospitality and those who are struggling and afflicted. It brings glory to God. It brings glory to God and other men see it. And it gives a testimony to the power of the truth of how we have been changed in the family we belong to. Well, secondly, it also aids us in the sense that this unique love brings a deeper credibility to our own confession that we are indeed followers of Christ who practice this love modeled after the Prince of Love, Jesus Christ. John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love toward one another. Nolan, as a brother in Christ, I don't care how miserably you failed this week, but when you step into the community and the family of God, which by faith you've been made part of, and you can say with sincerity and have from deep conviction of your heart, you truly care about another Christian because they are a Christian. Not because they listen to you talk about your particular likes and hobbies and things. No, no, you, you share a common bond spiritually with them. And that's why you love them. I don't care how miserable you've been this week in your walk with the Lord. It's evident to your profession of faith that you are one of Jesus's. So you see how it can help you? I mean, why in the world would you love these people, right? If you're not really born again. Especially those ones who always want to talk about Jesus, right? You wouldn't want to be around them very, very, very long. 
But thirdly, this unique love will vindicate us before a cruel and a false accusing world. I think of Isaiah 53, 7 where it describes Jesus going like a lamb unto the slaughter with his mouth closed and how that love that compelled him for his brethren, that love that compelled him for all of those who God was going to give him, it vindicated him. Did it not on the great day of Pentecost that we talked about in Zechariah 12? That love that compelled him eventually to a world that was falsely accusing him, it vindicated him because ever since that day of Pentecost, there have been millions upon millions who have said he was innocent. He was the precious lamb of God. He has been with every conversion of a new believer vindicated. Amen. Over a false accusing world. And that can bring us comfort. It can bring us encouragement. There's been times, a few times, specifically I can remember in my Christian life, and it's not unique to anyone in ministry, where there will be a false accusation. And you know there's whispers, and you know there's talks of false accusations. And any, each and every time, I have always taken the position, I will be like David, and I will be silent. I will let God vindicate me. I'm not going to stand up and defend myself because I'm not afraid of the truth. I have nothing to hide. If, those, if people want to know all the facts, they can contact me and I'll give them all the facts. I will be like Jesus Christ. I will be silent. I will let Lord, the Lord uh, that I trust in, defend me. I belong to Him. He is my Father. Friends, possessing that type of love that will allow you to endure such false accusations will strengthen you in the end. But lastly, this unique love will testify within our own hearts the assurance that we are God's children. A love for the brethren can add to our assurance. I would go to Hebrews 10 through 11. You remember this perhaps in chapter 6, verses 10 through 11. Paul, or I just gave it away. I, I kind of thought that Paul, Paul wrote Hebrews. Um, the inspired writer Hebrews says, God is, God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have showed toward His name, that you have ministered to the saints and do minister, right? And now here's where it adds assurance to the faith. And we desire that every one of you who do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. And so there's a sense in which when you possess this love, this unique love talked about in verse number one, and it's exercised in your life, it adds assurance to your salvation. Now, church, from this, we can make this very appropriate observation at this point. In chapters 1 through 12, we were repeatedly told to look to Jesus. Amen? Look to Jesus. The love that you have for Jesus is absolutely vital to ensure that you make it unto the end. But I think we're seeing here something else now. Not only are we to look to Jesus, but we're to look to the love that we have for one another. Because that's the pillar that ensures not only I make it in the end, but that you make it unto the end as well. Not one of us in here is intended to consider themselves in the race alone. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3.14, Above all things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. I'm going to ask a question. It's not intended to offend anyone. But at this point, I think it has to be asked. Is there any among us who finds it somewhat difficult to love the brethren? 
Oh, sure, I can tolerate the brethren for the length of a church service as long as the pastor don't go too long. However, truly for you, it's difficult to sincerely desire to want to know how you might be a blessing to your fellow church member through your time, through your interest in them, through your conversation with them about how they are doing, what is going on in their life. How can you be of any help? Brother and sister, if that's the case, if you would allow the Holy Spirit to honestly examine you, you must immediately begin this very day to foster and cultivate a deep and real consciousness of your great need for the Spirit's ministry within your heart to bring about a change. Because this is not something in and of ourselves, this love this desire to want to share this love with other spiritual brothers in our midst. It is, we know from Scripture, a fruit of the Spirit. And if you do this, you've seen already from those four points I gave you, we could look at more. It's not just for your own spiritual welfare, but it's also for the welfare of those who love you as well. What's the means by which this fruit of love of the Spirit can be enlarged in a heart that perhaps is a little indifferent or a little bit reserved and drawn back. Well, I know it sounds really simple, but it really is powerfully true. And it's prayer. Oh God, enlarge within my life the love that I know Scripture says I have at times I don't feel. And Lord, may you continually enlarge it in my life to where it abundantly overflows, especially with my other brothers and sisters in the household of faith who you've made me a member of. You pray that way. Well, moving along in our text for today, we discover that this unique and this distinct love that's shared amongst the spiritual brotherhood of the household of faith, is now, the writer, pointed in two specific and practical directions, or you could say applications. The first we're going to look at is it being exhibited in hospitality. It says in verse 2, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. We gather from verse 1, not general, natural love toward our fellow humankind in the flesh, but our special love, right, that we share amongst the spiritual brotherhood. We gather from that that the strangers here in verse 2, of course, is most likely other Christian brothers or sisters who are outside of their local congregation and who perhaps are traveling from a distance or whatever, and they're with them for a certain period of time. We can gather that much safely from the text. Me and AJ just experienced this. We went to Montville, New Jersey, and those Christians who we stayed with who gave us hospitality, they didn't know us personally, but they knew that their pastor knew us, and so they opened their home to us. And that's really the sense in which verse 2 is talking about. And so then the unique love that's referenced in verse number one, it is, we see, to be demonstrated in a tangible way 
when opportunity presents itself by way of hospitality. What's hospitality is if I need to insult your intelligence and explain that, simply providing the physical needs for someone while they're temporarily in your midst, right? That's what it's saying. Now look at your notes. This duty of showing hospitality to strangers, it is, of course, repeated throughout the Bible again and again, beginning all the way back in Deuteronomy, all the way up to 3 John. And you could look at more of those Bible verses in your own time to further appreciate what actually takes place in hospitality, how we benefit from hospitality, so forth and so on. Now, unfortunately, as we're considering this taking in strangers who profess to be Christians among us, unfortunately, we all know that open-handed Christian hospitality can and is liable to be abused by unprincipled, immature, or otherwise false professors that we don't know yet who would want to just get a free ride and take advantage of people for lodging, food, clothing, so forth and so on. Understanding that, we're not ostriches with our heads in the sand, right? Uh, understanding that, that still doesn't remove us from the call to exercise this unique love that we have toward Christian brethren. But we're to do it with sanctified common sense. We're not to be gullible. Matthew 10, 16, we're to be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. We give people the benefit of the doubt, but we don't do it undiscriminately, right? Um, I doubt it that the Vigario family, AJ, would have hosted us if they had never met us before, uh, even though, I don't know, they, they, there are some people like this. Um, they had some point of contact. They knew that our profession was credible uh, through their pastor, so forth and so on, and so they opened their home. But you guys know the story, um, and I don't know, I haven't tracked them all down, about how Martin Luther, his wife, I, I can't think of her name right now off the top of my head, she used to always get beside herself, you know, because Martin Luther would just invite everyone into his home and give everything away to anyone who said that they were a Christian and then part of the Reformation, so forth and and so on. In fact, I remember it was uh, kind of a, a cute moment here when we were at dinner at a host family. Not the one we were staying with. It was another family who had us over for dinner on Tuesday night. And the wife of this pastor who was hostess for dinner told AJ, now AJ, when you're looking for a wife, just make sure that you have a wife who was willing, in other words, what she was saying, to, to, to deal with, uh, to be open, uh, to, to have to manage unexpected opening of the front door for people to be invited over for dinner and so forth and so on because I took it that she really didn't know what was taking place when she had like five or six pastors showing up at her front door, you know. Uh, but, but, but to his credit, Pastor Eugene had it all mapped out. There was some people that brought in some Mexican food from, he had a Spanish-speaking church. They had made it, so they delivered it and the, you know, and Mrs. Pinero, she was just kind of like, okay, okay, and she's putting it all together and it all worked out, and that's why she gave AJ that exhortation. Well, what can do we have anything that can help us in discerningly exercising this Christian love um, in, a, in, a, in a right way? I think we do. Um, we have recorded for us, as you see in your notes, a very early manuscript from church history, one of the earliest, in fact, called the Didache. And there's three instructions I'm going to share with you. I gave you the website. You can actually go get this transcription in its entirety. But here's three instructions that they gave the very earliest Christian manuscript we got of how to do Christian hospitality. Number one, 
Instructions were given that every stranger professing to be a Christian should be received, but that his profession should afterwards be put to the test. Again, just discretion, right? It wasn't just blind, you know, believing people. Number two, those who claim to be teachers, claim to be pastors, especially were to undergo scrutiny and if found to teach error in their beliefs, they were immediately to be rejected and sent on their way. And I thought this last one was a lot of common sense and helpful for me. Lastly, thirdly, under ordinary, underscore under ordinary circumstances, anyone who stayed more than two to three days and asked for money also was sent was to be sent on his or her way as an imposter and a parasite. And so we gather from this that all in all, while we don't have to set a rigid time limit like the early church did, we should at least execute Christian hospitality with that little virtue called tactfulness and discernment. But now, moving more to the interesting part that you want to look at in that verse. Notice that this exhortation to show hospitality to Christians who are strangers to you in your area, notice that it's reinforced with this motive that if you do so, or some have, not, not you, but for it says, for by doing so, some have unwillingly entertained angels. Well, that's quite a motive. I mean, because if you're telling me that entertaining strangers could possibly mean that I'm entertaining angels, I, I can't wait to the first stranger I meet, right? I'm ready to do this. Now, we know from the Bible, what's, what's the right interpretation of this? We know from the Bible Interestingly, it's in the book of Genesis. Not very much after that, even though there's a couple instances. But we do know in the book of Genesis, chapter 18, Abraham entertained, he hosted three heavenly beings that were given the ability to appear or assume a human nature. And he hosted them for dinner. One, I believe personally in preaching through that and studying it, that it was Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus, the angel of the Lord. I believe that one of the three was him and that's why uh, he received the worship that Abraham bowed and gave to him. Genesis 19, again, shortly after this instance, you have Abraham's nephew Lot who entertained two angels who Lot, and at least all the homosexual men in Sodom and Gomorrah, thought were real men. So that's why I say they appear or under God's sovereign rule of overall creation, they were allowed to assume a human body. And so with that information being in the Bible, some say that the right interpretation of this is exactly what's on the surface. That by entertaining strangers, you very well could be entertaining an angel that has assumed a human form may even have human ability to it and nature to it, able to eat the meal with you, so forth and so on. And by doing so, there would be a tremendous blessing from it. Others, trusted theologians, take the perception that he's saying this, adding this second part to the verse, because he knows who he's writing to, a Jewish audience, who knows their history, who knows Abraham and Lot entertained angels before. And when you go back to those instances... Isn't it true that those angels brought a very peculiar blessing with them? You think about the announcement of the three angels that were, or the, the three heavenly hosts that Abraham gave hospitality to. They gave revelation. They pronounced to Abraham that Sarah would have a son. 
right? And then you think about Lot's angels that he entertained. They rescued him from the clutches of death. And so my only reluctance with looking and interpreting this as in our own day and age, that we very well could entertain angels who have a physical form, my only reluctance is that is if someone takes that to the next step and say, they gave me some kind of direct divine communication from God. That's my reluctance with that interpretation. I, I like better myself the interpretation that he's adding this in here as a motivation to say, when you take in strangers, uh, as some have under, uh, entertained angels, you, you have every reason to believe that you're going to receive a great blessing from doing it. In other words, if any of you came in here next Sunday and you said, I entertained a stranger, and you know what? I believe that they actually were an angel. Why in the world do you think that? Well, they told me things about myself that no one else could know. They began to say things about the future, which I'm sure are on the horizon from this and this and this. You see, that's where I would have to sit down and have a cup of coffee with you. We probably have a whole pot of coffee. But, but um, it is, we can say with the interpretation that it's alluding to, there's a, there's, he's just trying to emphasize the motivation of doing this is because you, you can't even anticipate the blessing of, of entertaining strangers. And it's certainly true. In the years that I have been a Christian, and I have entertained, I've shown hospitality to other Christian strangers or acquaintances. Uh, there's not been one time that they have not paid me back in a tremendous blessing of sincere, genuine Christian fellowship um, and also encouraging me in the things of God. And I, that's how I would interpret this passage, that there is a blessing when you entertain and you exhibit love to other Christians who are either acquaintances in your home or strangers that you exercise discernment with uh, in your home. Brothers and sisters, when that time is over, you will be tremendously blessed by doing it. Oh, the conversations. Oh, the encouragement in the way. Oh, knowing and meeting other brothers and sisters that are from a place you never knew of, etc., and etc. So in other words, if I had missed out on those things because I didn't show hospitality, I would have been the one that would have been missing out, right? Well, let us now consider as we move on here the second practical application. He says it in verse 3, Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and with them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. And this is love exhibited, is it not, towards suffering brethren. Now the writer is undoubtedly referring to brethren who suffer for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And thus we learn that the unique Christian love that we've talked about in verse 1 especially ought to be manifested to those who are ill-treated by the world for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. As you see in your notes, I call this, we're all in this together principle. That's what this is, right? Paul over in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, he echoes the same idea when he says, whether one member suffers or all members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Think for a moment how Jesus, he identified as being one with those in his church who were suffering when he met Saul, the persecutor of Christians on the road to Damascus. And what did he say? Saul, Saul, why dost thou persecute me? What do you mean? Jesus weren't persecuting you. He was persecuting your church. That's because Jesus was setting for us, brothers and sisters, an example. When you, any of my little ones, suffer, I suffer. I care. 
And we are to think like Jesus. That's what this whole point of this passage is. Love continue among the brethren. Love grow among the brethren by way of hospitality. And now whenever any of us suffer trial, trouble, or affliction, we're all in it together. And we should feel the same pain. We should feel the same affliction as our brother and sister in the faith does. Now for some, suffering we know for the faith means a reproach of close friends and family members. For some, it means, especially in other countries that are very hostile to Christianity, for some it means a loss of employment, a loss of income, a a confiscation of their goods, their home, their property. For some, it means banishment. For some, it may even mean separation from the most intimate relationships in a family, your own spouse or your children. But whatever the circumstances or the nature of the suffering and the ill treatment that's coming upon one of us in the community of Christ. Brethren, in accordance with the golden rule set forth in Matthew 7.12, we ought to, therefore, in all things whatsoever we would that men should do to us, we should do for them. How would you wish in your time of suffering and affliction to be treated by other brothers and sisters in the church. Whatever you can think in your mind, that's what we're to reciprocate to others. When we see, we hear, we gain knowledge that they're going through that. It's very simple. The golden rule. Suffer with those who suffer. Put yourself in their shoes. Remember, I say this often, what the definition, the catechetical definition of biblical truth of what sin is. It is not only a transgression, outright transgression of God's law, but it's also a lack of conformity to it, not doing what we know God's law would want us to do, right? And so it is sin to know of suffering in the life of a believer. And, and as you have ability, that's the key word. We're not laying heavy yokes on people that don't have the ability to relieve someone in suffering. But as you have ability, an opportunity presents itself. It is sinful not to do so. It is sinful. Well, how could we expect such love to be exhibited in suffering of our brothers and sisters, especially those who are in prison? Well, I'm not going to have anything new. Uh, I have five here for the sake of time. I can't really expound on them, but I'm just going to list them as you see them in your handout. I get these from John Owen in his commentary on the book of Hebrews. He says, first of all, Let us show as brothers in the faith for those who are suffering, especially those who are imprisoned, let us show care, concernment. Let us not have a regardlessness toward their suffering. Let us not fall into the ditch. It's not affecting me, so therefore it's just not that important to me. What a horrible state to be in. He said, secondly, first is just very simply care. That should be a given. But he said, secondly, to demonstrate compassion. He says here, quote, It's a great relief unto the innocent sufferers of the faith to show pity to them. Even when you cannot provide any real physical help to them, but just to communicate your pity for them and let them know that you are thinking about them and you're praying for them. You know, sometimes, brothers and sisters, I think we undervalue this. 
we might think to ourselves, well, I really can't be there to do something. I just don't have the time to get over there and do that. Well, that may all be very well and true, but at least express, I see you. Brother or sister, I care for you. I am praying for you. My line's open if you ever need someone to talk to. You see, compassion. And that goes a long way to those who are in a season of suffering. The third is to be very diligent in prayer. As we see the case was in Acts 12.12, when Peter was in prison, what were the others doing? Oh, they were beating on the throne room of God and they were praying and God did mighty things that day when they prayed. Do we really honestly exhibit love for our suffering brethren by praying for them? Wherever there's a lack of love, I keep going back to this, because me and AJ heard three days of it, right? I'm just giving you what I heard. Wherever there is a lack of love in your prayer life for those who are your brothers and sisters who are suffering, there is a lack of love for Jesus. A lack of love for Jesus. And we go and pray, Oh God, I've been cold in my love for Christ and His people. And flame within me afresh the zeal and the love that I should have for my fellow brothers and sisters who you've united me with. Not only besides prayer, he says, also if we can assist them. A lot of times in the context, especially of John Owen, there were a lot of nonconformists who didn't conform to the Church of England or to the Roman Catholic Church and they were imprisoned. And you guys know the story of John Bunyan preaching from you know, the prison bars. And John Owen's saying here that, you know, if you can assist them, you can't get them out of a prison, but they have a family. And, you know, if the father, the pastor or father, a man is from the home in prison, you know, they need in, they don't have an income now. They don't have a family. So he says the most practical thing you could do is assist them. So care for them. So express your compassion. Uh, earnestly pray and put, you know, action uh, to your compassion by assisting them. And lastly, he says, to visit those who are in prison. And we know this comes with a special command from our Lord Jesus in Matthew 25, verses 35 through 36. Remember he said, those who are hungry, feed them. Those who are thirsty, give them drink. Those who are naked, clothe them. And those who are in prison, visit them. And to the degree you do it to the least of one of these, Jesus says, you've done it unto me. And so in so much as any one of us here were, and times very well could come, and indeed, if we have any working knowledge of Scripture and human nature, we know that indeed that times will come, brothers and sisters, not in our generation, but maybe in the future, that the Christians, Christians will and continue will be put in prison for their faith. And as we can visit them, we should visit them. Um, this goes back to just the importance of prison ministries. Brothers and sisters, there are men and women right now in prison who love the Lord Jesus Christ. They have been there in prison perhaps because of their faith around certain parts of the world. Or there's even in our own context here in the West, people that are in prison that have been converted in prison. And they have everything in this world working against their faith that they have expressed in those, those bars, right? And I have never... I've known two men who were converted in prison and I had an intimate relationship with as far as a friendship wise, knowing them in a church context. Uh, there's not one real Christian who was convicted as a convict in prison who's sitting down there saying it was someone else's fault. All of them 
or saying, I'm here because I sinned and I deserve to be here, right? It was a just punishment. But they still need to be visited. They still need to be encouraged with the word. They still need to be prayed for. They still need to be encouraged to make it unto the end. All right. Just some concluding thoughts. As the church of Jesus Christ, brethren, we have received the gift of Christ's love. We have been given His full forgiveness of our sins. And it's that same love that effectually drew us to the cross. And we see here today, it's that same love that's going to help us make it on the very end of our race as Christians. But we don't get there alone. We don't get there alone. We are never intended to make it there alone, but alongside our fellow believer. And so let the love of the brethren grow and let it persistently continue in our midst and in our lives. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you, Lord, for what you have shown us today in your word regarding, first of all, the love of Christ, but also the love that you have supernaturally given us as your people, which is to be expressed, it is to be animated amongst ourselves in two specific ways of caring for and showing hospitality to strangers, other Christian brothers and sisters who may come into our midst, and also those who suffer. Suffer imprisonment, but by extension also suffer in so many other ways. We pray, O Spirit of God, that you would, as we mentioned in our sermon, grow this love within our hearts that we would overflow with care, concern, and compassion for one another, knowing that each and every one of us is on a rigorous, challenging, arduous race that has many things, namely ourselves, as obstacles to deter us and prevent us from finishing well this calling of faith that you have called us unto. Help us to be aware of our fellow runners. Help us to deeply love and deeply be concerned for each one of us, making it under the, under the end with ourselves, arm in arm, locked together, united in Christ by faith, until we come again someday into your glorious presence and see you face to face as you have promised. We give you thanks, honor, and all glory for everything that we have thought of today and for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.